Welcome to Podagogies, a learning and teaching podcast at Ryerson University. I'm Curtis Maloli. And I'm Chelsea Jones. We are recording in the Allen Slate Radio Institute in Toronto on the Dish with One Spoon territory. And today we're discussing what makes a great teaching philosophy. Now, most people who teach in universities have to write one at some point, and crafting this document is a crucial practice. Our employment relies on it. So whether you're a sessional instructor applying to teach a course, or maybe you're a professor applying for tenure, reflecting on your teaching and putting those reflections to paper is not always an easy task. Today we have a guest who will help us pick apart what it takes to write a really great teaching philosophy. Dr. Annette Bailey is the Associate Director of the Collaborative Degree Program in Ryerson's Daphne Cockwell School of Nursing. In addition to an extensive disciplinary research portfolio, Dr. Bailey also does research in the Scholarship of Teaching and Learning and collaborates with both graduate and undergraduate students on research projects. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Annette, do you remember what it was like to write your first teaching philosophy and what it said? Hmm. So, um, of course, my first teaching philosophy was for the requirement of tenure. Mm. Um, and I sort of developed a rudimentary one when I applied to, um, to Ryerson University, but sort of built on it um, once I uh, started to do work towards tenure. Um, and so you, you pointed out, Chelsea, so rightly, that yes, a teaching philosophy is normally developed for a teaching job position or also for tenure. Mm. But what have, one of the things that I've come to um, understand about teaching philosophy is that although it's crucial to get your tenure and to get a teaching position, that really we should be thinking about developing teaching uh, philosophy with a primary goal to inspire our students to build critical thinkers in the classroom and also for our own enjoyment, to love it, right? But we're teaching so that we can go into the classroom and enjoy our teaching as much of the stu- as the students. When you were thinking about how you did that, so the yeah. first time you sat down and you're like, okay, I've got to put together my philosophy, uh, what was your process? How did you come to uh, identify what those key things were for you? Um, so for me, in the process of develop the teaching, not only did I ask myself the question of what I wanted, the difference I wanted to make, but I also wanted to um, help students to realize their own potential. So it's about igniting um, students' own realization of their potential um, and who they who they can be uh, as a teach as a learner in the classroom. But to help them understand that they are also teachers. So it, we get engage in this teaching learning process in the classroom where we don't only bring the knowledge to the classroom, that te- I, I recognize teaching and learning as a dual responsibility for me as a teacher and also for the students. And so inviting students' voices in the classroom is so important because we learn from them. Mm-hmm. One of the things you said earlier was that part of the purpose of a teaching philosophy can be to um, to think about your own love of teaching. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you can say a little bit about what brings you to teaching and where your love of it might be rooted. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a very important question. Um, I started out as I'm a nurse. And when I started nursing, I worked in all different um, 
acute settings. Mm. And then I decided I wanted to um, work in public health to see what contribution I could make to prevention and protection of people's health before they get sick. And I worked in public health for quite a while, and health promotion concepts can be very um, abstract. So when we talk about capacity building, what does that really mean for students? When we talk about empowerment, what does that mean for students? And so I would get students who come from the university settings, and I would preceptor them in, um, in, in my public health role. And so it was engaging them in a process of understanding what is public health and how is public health actualized. And so these concepts that they were learning in the classroom, they felt that they didn't quite understand how they were um, actualized in, 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 in real life, like everyday mm -hmm. public health work. And I would engage them in, in different uh, ways of deconstructing um, these abstract concepts and helping them to realize how they're applied. And students would say to me, you know, over and over, wow, you made that so simple. You made it look so simple. And, and so they would say, you know that you are a good teacher. And I thought, really? You see a teacher in me? I don't see a teacher in me. And so they would tell me about how difficult it was for them to understand the concept previously and to for me to be able to unpack it in such a manner that creates clarity for them. That was something that they were quite excited about. And it was my students who are preceptor that encouraged me to go into teaching. Do you have specific techniques to bring, to empower students in your classroom? What are some of the ways that yeah. you, you do that? So my teaching philosophy is based on empowerment, mm -hmm. but it's really about helping people, whether it be students or others, to take control of their own learning. Um, I remember um, Paula Freire in um, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed talk about empowering education as an instrument of liberation and not a tool of conformity. And for me, it's about how do you liberate students' mind? How do you liberate their um, need to take actions? How do you make them feel um, like they are, they have a contribution to make in the classroom or any kind of learning space? And so, what I wanted to do was to uh, facilitate the development of a student-centered um, process or environment. And that to me is a, would tell me that I am in fact empowering my student. And also to facilitate the, the whole notion, we're talking about student engagement, both inside and outside of the classroom. Mm -hmm. If I'm able to achieve those two goals, then my philosophy of empowering students, um, I feel like I'm moving towards um, achieving that. Liberation means you can take risk. Liberation means that you are not afraid to say what you know or what you don't know. Um, liberation is about um, engaging in various scholarly approach. And I think about students who outside of the classroom feel safe to engage in scholarly writing for publication with me, uh, attending clinic um, conferences in other countries with me. That's the kind of risk that some students take, not 
they take it cautiously because they're thinking, you know, they come to me and they're saying, they say, I really love what you're doing in terms of your research, but I, I'm not a writer. I don't write. And so, you know, I'll ask them the question, can you think? And I said, well, if you can think, you can write. Mm. Because it's about translating your thinking into words. Mm-hmm. And yeah. is also something that you can do with a teaching philosophy yeah. as well. I want to um, return to this piece about liberation mm-hmm. that you're mentioning. Mm-hmm. Um, because it seems to me that, that something like liberation, as you're describing it, mm-hmm. is something that perhaps is possible to see in your students in class, perhaps on a weekly basis, but perhaps more difficult to measure or enact outside of the classroom. Mm. So how how do you stay with students and take some of these principles outside of the classroom and, and really help them stick to that? Yeah. And for me, um, I've been working with students at all different levels of mm-hmm. their education in what I we've come to term. And my colleagues and I, we've worked on publication relating to intellectual collaboration with students. What is intellectual collaboration yeah. or intellectual partnerships? I yeah. think I've seen it called as well. Yeah. So it's bringing students into your work, into your research work. It's, it's building scholarly endeavors together, co-creating knowledge uh, together with students as a partner, as opposed to I'm the teacher and you are the student. And we take that out of the classroom because in the classroom there tends to be as much as we try to deconstruct the, the imbalance of power in the classroom between the students and the teachers, it still exists. And so when students feel comfortable to learn and grow and create knowledge outside of the classroom with their teachers, um, that can really empower them, that can build their productivity, that can help them to see that they have skills and capacities that maybe they hadn't themselves recognized um, before. So we will work with students. I will work with students to, as I said, develop um, uh, articles for publication. We write book chapters together. And these are undergraduate students These too. are undergraduate students and, um, and they don't necessarily need to come with any kind of preparation. As long as they're willing to work, some of them come to me and they just want to have to engage in something that they can put on their resume. Right. And that's okay, mm-hmm. right? Because as long as they're willing to do do it and they're um and they're willing to work with me, they're willing to go wherever, you know, we take the scholarly um work, I, I'm fine with that. And I've seen that I've had students who maybe I start with in year two, they were in year two now they've graduated, they're working as nurses, but they still come back. And we still continue to do research together. They analyze data, they collect data. Um, and so for me, is uh, engaging students in those kinds of mentorship opportunity is very fulfilling to me as a teacher. And especially when I see that they're, they've gotten to a point where they're not saying anymore I want something to put on my resume but they've gotten to a point where they're they're now actually talking about how can I contribute to knowledge how can I Hmm. contribute to the dissemination 
of knowledge. Which right? for an undergraduate is a pretty amazing yeah. experience. We know yeah. at the graduate level there's that expectation. Yeah. But for an undergrad to imagine that they're part of that process, yes. that sounds like it's a really important yeah. uh, part of your pedagogy. Absolutely. And I've seen, and it's so, such a delight to see students uh, transform from being unsure about their intellectual capacity to taking leadership on maybe a scholarly um, piece of writing, any kind of scholarly endeavor. I, I'm very much encouraged um, when students move from that point of meekness, you know, they can't really understand. They don't know if yeah. they're saying the right thing. Mm -hmm. Should I speak? Should I contribute to that point of mastery, from moving them from ambiguity to un to certainty, um, seeing them uh, move from a place of affirming to now disagreeing. So I have two questions. About yes. So I'm actually, I have an article in front of me that you, yeah. you partnered with oh dear. more students than I know. There's, there must be 17 <laughs> authors on this thing. Okay. That's, uh, that's... It's in a top nursing journal uh, yeah. in nurse education and practice. Right, right. Um, and you've got, I, there must be, I think you must you must have 17 or 13 to 17. Yeah, there's I didn't quite count a them. bit. I should have counted yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. But uh, this is about, this is actually a paper that's kind of reflexive. It's about this mentor-mentor-mentor-mentee uh, relationship. Right. Um, and using transformative learning theory. Right. And what I, what I would like to know is in, when you write something like this, what is the process? Like, how do you yeah. work with that many students to come yeah. together and do this? This particular article uh, describes our process of mentoring um, students. And so the reason that that has so many of our students is because we brought together students over the years that we have um, mentored together. So they've gone through this intellectual collaboration process. They understand it. And so mm -hmm. we're describing what that process is like. So we needed to get their voice, their reflection. So students will participate in many different ways in the development of um, this kind of work. Um, some will participate by maybe providing some literature review. Um, others will participate by uh, providing reflection of their own experience in mentorship, for example. Um, others will uh, participate through uh, critical narrative discussions that we have at the table to sort of flesh out all the different ideas and organize um, the article. Others will talk more about implications. So what is the implication of all of this? Um, but everybody is involved in the editing process everybody. So we either use email, maybe we might use Google Docs or Dropbox and we contribute. But everybody knows what they have to do um, uh, ahead of time and we just work together. We set timelines and we just work together. So working with students is really no different than working with our own colleagues. Right. right? Yeah. So it's, it's the process. But we involve them at every step of the way so that they're developing the idea. Um, one thing that comes to mind when I hear you describe this process, and it it sounds like a very involved process in all the right ways. Yeah. Um, but I'm also it's also bringing up questions of capacity. Mm. So I'm thinking about the work of. Um, building your love of teaching and reflecting on that if you're in, for example, um, a sessional position and perhaps you're moving from institution to institution and your experiences with students might actually be quite fleeting. Yeah. Um, how can someone in a position like that do this work of 
enriching their classroom both inside and out of it? So for me, it's about how do I bring students, engage students in what I'm already expected to do for myself, in in what I'm already um, engaged in and in what I'm already passionate about. Hmm. So it's not... I don't know how I would be able to separate these pieces and student engages engagement versus um, the scholarly work that I have to do. I have an opportunity, and it's a privileged one, to be able to engage in scholarship as a requirement of my job. Mm. And so and then I have access to the students and I can empower them. I can build their capacity. I can build their skills through the process of doing my job, right? So in a sense, my grandmother would say that's using one stone to kill two birds, right? And students um, are interested in the scholarly work that we do. A moment ago, you mentioned your grandmother. Mm-hmm. And so my question is, where did your love of learning come from? Who taught you that? Another good question. So I lived with a grandmother. I was raised by a grandmother who couldn't read. She she didn't have the opportunity to go to school because of, you know, circumstances that happened in her life um, as a youth. And so she she just didn't have the opportunity growing up in Jamaica to have that kind of access to education. So, I mean... Her uh, lack of ability to read was so, um, it, it, she couldn't even spell her name. That That's how much it was. But because she recognized what she lacked, um, she wanted to make sure that we had better opportunities. So she would always say to us, it's important that you go to school education is the key. Um, you must get an education, all of that. So we're, we're constantly um, pounded with the importance of education. And so that the love of learning just came out of that for me. It came from her saying, this is an imperative to me, le- uh, engaging in it to say not only is it an imperative for me, but it's, it's, it's a love. It's a passion. And everything you said earlier, even about um, how you involve students in your research, mm-hmm. um, is grounded. I mean, I'm, I really hear, uh, I hear that you really trust your students. You trust to work with them. Mm-hmm. You trust them side by side. Mm-hmm. Um, in your classroom, are there other techniques or strategies that you use yeah. that uh, kind of illustrate that the, the way that trust the trust with your students is really important? Yeah. And I think... When you trust your students, you have to trust their voice. Hmm. You have to trust the knowledge that they bring into uh, the learning space. And so the first thing I do is make sure that students' voices come out in the classroom so they share their lived experiences. I share my lived experiences. That is um, in relevance to the topic um, of discussion. Um, and I find that it's good to to hear students' voices in the classroom because then you can explore and build on what they already know. You can link in a new content to existing knowledge. Um, and, you know, so, and when you encourage them to share your, uh, get that idea of co-creating knowledge among students in the classroom is very important. It, it builds an inclusive 
um, classroom as well and a supportive uh, one. So that's one way that I sort of uh, build um, or empower students within the classroom. Um, critical questioning, critical discussions is important to me. Uh, so classroom activities are deliberately designed uh, to stir critical thinking and promote insightful uh, perspective. I encourage students to have a questioning attitude towards content by enacting engaging activities with critical questions. So we'll have activities such as debates. Mm, I've heard you ha you are you yeah. have, you have great debates in your class. Uh, <laughs> yeah, when, I love you, debates. How do you create a debate that's not like you know agree versus disagree or that position versus this position? Yeah. What do you do with your students? So um, it's it's about creating a topic area, a topic that is controversial, that is. Um, uh, one that's debatable, one that you can take from all different sides, mm -hmm. that we can draw different perspectives um, from it. And the idea of creating debates in the classroom is to help build students' public speaking skills, is to help to um, help them to contribute to the learning um, in the classroom. It's also to help them critically analyze um, um, content matter, um, not taking it f face value like information. You know, we 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 find often that students will read an article and they will say, "Well, if the article says it like that, then I believe it." So I find with the debates because you have to take certain positions and you have to come up with arguments and you have to anticipate um, rebuttals that students. Um, are anticipating, so they're thinking about what they're reading in the article and how they present that knowledge. And if it's refuted, then is that something that you as a student believe? Um, and Or is there some other way that you can interpret that knowledge? And I remember you saying to me that you would create questions that uh, had many answers. So yeah. so that way it wasn't really about who's it, right or wrong, but what are the different lenses? And, and, and the two arguments can coincide in a way that is hard to unpack them. For example, in one of our debates, we talked about which um, of the determinant has a greater impact on the health of marginalized people. Is it race or is it poverty? Well, we understand that poverty impacts on health in so many different ways, socially and eventually physically. But race also has an impact because poverty ha is, a, in a sense, proxy, or income is a proxy of race. So how do, you, how do students pull those two apart when they're so closely um, uh, um, intersected, hmm. right? So then they have the challenge of trying to pull them apart in a debate. And one debate where we used that topic, it was wonderful, it was fascinating after this vibrant, active debate happened in the classroom, that at the end the students said, we just, but, but, but really, let's just agree to, let's just agree that both of them impact almost equally and that they intersect and the intersection has ripple effects on people's health. And that one doesn't exist without the other. And I go, bravo, that's, that's it. That's really what I wanted to get from this, hmm. right? So at the end, students are realizing that 
they're not disagreeing with each other. But really, the debate is for them to come to an understanding. You're describing this trajectory of students moving from kind of a a safe place or a more cautious place into this sort of explosive analysis and and kind of a public analysis that they're sharing with each other. And is that one of the ingredients to liberation, as you were describing it earlier? Yeah. And I think liberation is to uh, feel a sense um, of um, ownership, a sense of that you're that you're that you matter that the knowledge that you bring matter that your voice matter that you're in that there's an inclusive process and you're a part of that and i think that's that helps students to come out in the classroom and um and be and feel safe to present uh their perspectives um and i think if that's not liberation, then what really is it when you can have students uh, not come into a classroom and sit behind their computers, but you can have students come into a classroom and say, you know, I read this beautiful article yesterday and I wanted to present this. I wanted to share this with the class. That's somebody who feels safe, that's somebody who's moved from a point of, mm-hmm. um, I'm not just a learner who is filled like a bucket with information, but I'm an, a learner and I'm a teacher and I can contribute and I can enlighten um, other um, students and I, and I can feel free to uh, present my knowledge, my truth, right, and not be judged negatively for it. Do you have any advice for someone who's listening to this and perhaps looking at the blank page and wondering, how do I start my teaching philosophy? Mm-hmm. What do I need to write? Yeah. For, for someone who's sitting down to write a philosophy, a teaching philosophy for the first time, just simply begin from that place of what is my purpose um, here? Uh, why do I want to take on this job? And um, when a student graduates, what do I want that student to be? And what and how can I influence that trajectory um, for the student? And so for me, being able to help students realize their potential, um, that the potential in for the classroom, the potential outside of the classroom, their potential as human beings, um, their potential contribution to a profession, then I want to be able to influence that by helping to create a process where they recognize their strength, their skills, their contribution, and they actually not just realize it, but actualize it in the classroom. Yeah, that's that's beautifully articulated, and it's yeah. amazing. I mean, your values are so clear. 
Um, and it, they're also clear in your practice, you yeah. know, whether it's from intellectual partnerships, the way that you uh, engage the students in debates. Those those principles and values are evident in, in all yeah. the stuff that you're doing. Yeah. Thank you for sharing this with no us today. No problem. No problem. And thanks to everyone at RTA Productions, John Gerardo and Alex Burney. Uh, this podcast is funded by the Learning and Teaching Office at Ryerson. If you have any feedback on today's episode or if you'd like to weigh in on, on what makes a great teaching philosophy in your discipline, uh, send us an email to Pod at ryerson.ca or leave a comment in the comment box. 